My name is Howard Gratton, and because of Ron Paul, I created the Honoring Ron Paul podcast. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. The Honoring Ron Paul podcast starts now. All right, welcome to my first solo episode. Uh, this is actually a little bit stressful for me, but I'm very excited to talk about my political ideology in general, because I think that's a bit that has been skipped. I alluded to uh, my ideology a couple times in the previous episodes of podcast, and this could also be a good introduction. I might uh, clip it and put it as an introduction on the web page so people kind of know what they're getting into. But in general, I had a significant uh, political and total paradigm change that kind of started with the Ron Paul revolution in 2007, his um, run for president. And that got me thinking in a lot of different ways and reading and reading and reading and then listening to different audiobooks and podcasts and really kind of questioning the entire system and how humans interact with each other and when force and violence is appropriate, when it's not, and also what is money, what is exchanges, what exactly are we doing. All of these things um, seem to be summed up in a few simple ways, but those simple ideas end up making a fairly complex and rare political ideology that really isn't shared by that many people. Unfortunately, in my opinion, you may have a different opinion about how fortunate you feel that is. Anyway, so I'm just going to start breaking it down with the simple ideas that basically everyone agrees with on a micro level or on, on an individual level. One is that all humans are equal. All humans have equal rights, I should say, equal in front of the law, not equal in abilities or talents or preferences. Those are all over the map, as we all know. Um, also, um, that everyone should do unto others as they would have them done unto themselves. Uh, that's across many cultures, um, not all cultures, unfortunately, but across many cultures, many religious ideologies, all have that type of a, a golden rule where you know you can't really go expecting other people to behave in a different way that you yourself are, are not willing to behave so that also includes not just who you are as a person but also what type of an occupation you have just because of what job you have or where you fit in society doesn't mean that you have more rights. You're not able to force people to do things just because of your job. You can't initiate violence against somebody and not be held accountable in a similar way to other people who would have committed the same acts. All this is fairly standard that a lot of people agree with, um, starting in kindergarten. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff. And so people have freedom to do things in their lives. And if those activities harm someone, that person is owed compensation. There needs to be some 
justice served. So that's uh, the human rights angle. When it comes to money, I think people really lose their way. And I think the main reason people lose their way is because they don't really understand what money is. When I say money, people oftentimes think of currency or the dollar bills or euros or whatever they have in their pocket. That is not money. That is what people are using to represent money. Money is created by human activity. As you are working, other people value your work and that subjective value that other people have identified, they're willing to trade some of their time for your time. And then they use whatever medium of exchange they want to uh, use at that time. Sometimes it's you know, in a co-op type situation. Sometimes it's bartering. Sometimes it's with currency. That's obviously the most common way of exchanging one person's work for another person's work. But ultimately, money represents one human's time doing an activity that others subjectively value. It's not just doing anything, digging a ditch and filling it back up. People don't value that. And even in investing, what you're essentially saying is that I'm going to take a portion of my time, give that to purchase someone else's time in a corporation or divide it up into multiple different people all working in a common goal. And because it's my belief that those people are going to be far more efficient and multiply their productivity better than I can with uh, my money or better than I choose to use my money at that time. So uh, the investment aspect, once again, isn't something mysterious. You're still trading your time for someone else's time. It's just multiplied within that company framework by the you know thousand people divided by the million shares, however many shares you have of their time. So when people start talking about freedoms and freedoms to do different things, the freedom to speak, um, the uh, freedom to act as, as long as they're not harming someone else, uh, but then some reason people feel that that freedom stops when it comes to money. They don't realize that money is the action that that person has already undertaken. And that is a portion of that person's life that they have voluntarily chose to do something with in exchange for currency or whatever item they're, they're working on. So the economic freedom that libertarians um, and anarchists of the voluntary perspective of the anarcho-capitalists are talking about that, that, that freedom extends to previously worked time. And so it's, it's abridging someone's freedom by taking their money. They're literally taking a portion of that person's life that they would have been able to use for something else, and you're forcibly taking it. So similar to you know, forcibly putting someone in a situation that they don't want to be put into, making them work, well, you're kind of doing that if you steal their money. Um, so that is where some people get tripped up 
they're not equating economic freedom with social freedom. People oftentimes feel, well, you can do whatever you want in your bedroom, you can do whatever you want in your life, but for some reason, the life that you've already lived in the form of the money that you have is fair game to take. So that brings us then to two concepts. One, all humans have equal rights. Two, money is life that you have lived specifically to exchange for someone else's time and effort. But that is separate from the currency or the exchange medium that represents that work. And I think that's very important because that in and of itself disproves this idea of a fixed pie or the fixed pie fallacy that if someone's a billionaire, they've taken that money from someone else. You know, that money was created and exchanged already. That money is brought new into this world. That's why people say, let's go make some money. Um, so if that money is then made brand new and that person that made that money has ownership of that because that's a, an offshoot of their own human action, then it's immoral to take that money and multiple religions and and ethical outlooks also feel that it is immoral to not share that money however one is an act of commission or force against an individual and the other is an act of omission or not doing something so oftentimes people apply two very different moral standards you can't solve a problem of omission by using violence to right that wrong because that's a, a an overreaction to the quote-unquote immoral act of not sharing enough and it's also very subjective as opposed to a very obvious oh this person committed violence so where does that bring us now that uh, we've understood what money is and understood that just because someone has more money does not mean that they've taken that from someone. There's no justified reason to take that person's money and share it. However, you may feel that person has a moral obligation to share and uh, you feel that person should uh, feel society's pressure to share and you can create all sorts of campaigns to encourage people to share as much as possible and you can exclude that person from your circle if you don't feel they're sharing enough you can't use violence to take that person's money just like you can't use violence to make someone eat healthy you can't use violence to make someone marry who you want them to marry um, it's the same um, moral paradigm of not forcing people to do what you want them to do. So those are the very general, simple ideas. And now let's start applying those to different political positions that both Democrats and Republicans have held over the years. Obviously, there's been a lot of switching and flipping and flopping. You know, Republicans used to be anti-war. Um, 
and Democrats used to be anti-war too. Now nobody seems to be. Um, but where do these concepts then kind of fit into our current United States left-right paradigm of Republican and Democrat? So uh, in one, one sense, since you can't use uh, violence, since all humans have equal rights, you can't use violence to change someone's uh, speech or actions or activities. That's very much a democratic talking point. Um, you know, the uh, war on drugs being immoral because all they're doing, all that drug user is doing is, is harming their own person. Um, you can't aggress against somebody because of sexual activity. You can't uh, aggress against somebody because of what they're saying. On the flip side, uh, you can't aggress against somebody just because of who they are, even if that means it happens to be somebody in a different country. It happens to be somebody who you as a government employee have been told is a rule breaker, is a, a bad person. You as an individual are held to that same standard regardless if you're wearing a badge, uh, regardless if you're wearing a uniform, uh, regardless if you've been deployed to a random country that your government has lied you into a war, or even if they're telling the truth about being in a war, who knows if that person is actually trying to commit violence against you or if they're just caught in the crossfire. So that's why libertarians or voluntarists are oftentimes accused of being on the left. So let's talk about the right. The use of violence to extract money from people in the form of taxes or fees that aren't voluntary, all of that is immoral. Uh, even if it's being used for a good purpose. Uh, because that use of a good purpose doesn't justify the initial violence. You can encourage a person to use it in a good way. You, know, you can create a GoFundMe, Indiegogo, whatever you want to do. But you can't initiate that initial violence. So, no taxes. Obviously, that's very much a right-wing talking point or low taxes nobody really in the political atmosphere is talking about no taxes um other than you know ron paul when he said uh um they asked him a question at a debate and it says 50 percent of the people in the united states don't pay taxes what would you do about that and he said we're halfway there <laughs> that's a really really great line you can youtube that one so similarly if someone is owning something that other people have used to commit violence, such as guns, weapons of war, things like that, you have no right to preemptively take that. And that's another big sticking point that a lot of people on the left have a really hard time. And so we get into uh, situations where... Once again, what somebody owns, uh, money, weapons, whatever it is, as long as they're not using that for violence, you don't have any right to take that. And once again, you can do things in a voluntary way to, to adjust people's 
activities that just what people feel comfortable owning. Uh, you can exclude people. You can shun people. If, if you feel that someone shouldn't own a bunch of weapons in your neighborhood, feel free to start a shunning campaign. I could care less. Uh, provided you don't use violence to achieve those goals. And truth be told, if you shun and exclude someone, that can be a very powerful way to change someone's behavior. Oftentimes people are very resistant to being told what to do um, if you are going to directly take something. Uh, they are going to resist that significantly. Uh, however, if um, you encourage, uh, you might um, find out that that's pretty effective. And so you may hear people uh, who are voluntarist or anarcho-capitalist or libertarians talking about governance versus government. Um, because we have a lot of our natural life where we accept these uh, forms of governance, our family, social institutions, churches, where we're voluntarily invested in these organizations and we accept their rulings, we accept um, what's expected of us, um, and we follow their policies in a voluntary fashion. And many people don't realize that the majority of our life is completely voluntary. We only have a very small sliver of our time where someone is forcing us to do something uh, through potentially violent means, and that's the government. Um, so someone who did some writing on this that I think is pretty persuasive is Jeffrey Tucker, um, Beautiful Anarchy. Um, he talks about how 99% of our day, it's all market exchange, it's all voluntary. Another um, good resource on the feel-goodery of voluntary association is Larkin Rose. Uh, he has a, a lot of really great stuff. Some resources going back to the, the money thing. If you're new to the idea of economics, by far the first book you should read is um, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. A great follow-up to that would be Choice by Dr. Robert Murphy, which is definitely thicker, but it's condensing down a book that is really thick, and that's um, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action. And um, uh, Dr. Murphy breaks down human action, updates it for today's modern world with more uh, modern and uh, analogies instead of analogies from the 30s. So uh, that's a great resource. Oh, and I did want to talk a little bit about the currency again, because a big issue in the United States right now is currency manipulation. With the Federal Reserve adjusting and suppressing uh, interest rates, allowing banks to loan out more funds, increasing the overall dollars that are available. And so those dollars are representing money, uh, true money that is created by human action. And the more that you have currency representing that same amount of money and work, the more you are going to have inflation. Things are going to become 
priced higher. And also, it's not just that, but the people that are uh, accessing that newly printed currency in relation to money are then going to um, get that first pass value. And you're going to have a disruption in how that currency it represents money through the economy. And we see that very much in the banking system, the financial system, and the government that also gets the money first has grown dramatically. And when people are talking about wealth inequality, they really miss this picture of that wealth inequality is coming from all of this abnormal financial institutions and relations to the government through the Federal Reserve mainly. So it's, it's very difficult for some people to recognize the Federal Reserve's impact and also government policies impact. But I, I strongly recommend that you look at a chart of what is expensive now, what is inexpensive now. And you can see how the things that are the most subsidized, most controlled, healthcare, education, housing, those have all increased significantly in price. Things that the government basically has a hands-off approach with, you know, electronics, um, uh, internet products, those are all very inexpensive. And so as money in the true sense is increasing through everyone's work, there should be a natural steady decline in the price of things. Um, because as productivity increases through the use of machines and coordination, all of these things should be costing you less time of your life to acquire because it's costing other people less time to create. And time represented in a currency, if that currency were to be truly stable, you would see a decline in prices. But you don't see that in several sectors of the economy. And those sectors happen to be the ones that the government is the most involved in. And so it's, it's very obvious to see that impact once you really start digging into it. A great primer book on that is Ron Paul's In the Fed. Um, it, even more basic than that would be Peter Schiff's How an Economy Grows and Why It Crashes. It's even got cartoon pictures. It's a basically a, a graphic novel with a whole bunch of words and some pictures. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very good. It's a, a very uh, easy primer on um, how excessive money printing distorts the economy and hurts a lot of people. And as that money is printed into the system, the economy is then altered in various ways, particularly as the money is brought into the system through artificially low interest rates. When it's brought in through artificially low interest rates, people are then tricked into thinking that now is a good time to invest in long-term projects because long-term projects are very capital intensive. So if you're going to borrow a lot of money to build a huge building, build a factory, build whatever it is you want to build, uh, the low interest rates is a very big signal to, oh, now is the time to do that. 
but that project is not going to come on board for three to five years, maybe even 10 years, uh, particularly some of these you know, big skyscrapers and all this stuff. And so, but when those projects are potentially done, that demand that was suggested by the low interest rates may not be there. And that is why you see these bubbles kind of slowly increase and increase and increase. And all of a sudden, those factors of production that all were kind of going towards what people thought were going to be profitable businesses, all of those start to collapse. And they start to collapse all at once. It doesn't make logical sense that you would see every sector of the economy collapsing at the same time. Um, you know, you know, why would the oil market be all messed up at the same time as the housing market is the same time as the electronics market? All of these things are selling off all at once. And it's because all of that demand has been improperly built up through artificially low interest rates. And it's unsustainable because those interest rates are not actually set by the market. When the interest rates are set by the market, what happens is people are saving money. They're saving money in, in banks or other financial institutions. And that money is then able to be lent out. And people have different time preferences for when they want to use that money. And if they want to save that money for a long time, they may be willing to loan out, loan out that money um, at different prices. And so the market has a, a way of setting the proper cost to loaning money in the form of interest rates. How much do I want this money now versus how much do I want this money in a year? Okay, give me 5% extra in a year. Give me 10% extra in a year. That is an important market signal that entrepreneurs and people who are building things really need to know because that's a, an indication of how much money is actually stored up for buying things in the future. If things are not, if money is not being stored up to buy things in the future and you just built this huge skyscraper, you're in for a world of hurt. And so that's how those interest rates are such a, a, an important signal to uh, entrepreneurs and people who are investing things. And that's where basically the business cycle comes from. Um, there's a, a ton of books on that. If you want to know specifically this most recent collapse, um, uh, Dr. Tom Wood's book, Meltdown. If you want to read a book that was written before the collapse, talking about what the collapse was going to be, that would be Crash Proof, once again, by Peter Schiff. Yeah, there's a, a great video montage called Peter Schiff Was Right, where he's on all these different uh, you know, TV shows asking what's going to happen with the economy, and he's always the one that's like, the housing market's going to collapse, it's unsustainable, and they're laughing at him. You know, he started... It starts in 2004 and, you know, then goes up through, you know, 2007, 2008, where they're still beginning in 2008, where they're still like, you know, this is, it's fine. We're going to pull out of it. No, you're not. Um, and uh, Ron Paul had a speech on the floor. I think it was in 2002 talking about what the Federal Reserve was doing to get us out of the dot-com collapse was going to set up a housing bubble. 
So uh, all of these things are in some ways predictable or these things are going to be a consequence. What's not predictable is when or how or what that particular black swan is going to be, what particular market is going to start the collapse. I personally think it's going to be the bond market, which is dramatically overvalued. Everybody has bonds out, municipalities, states, uh, multiple governments have all these bonds, and there's just not the money that's actually there to fulfill these bond uh, promises to pay off. And it's just... Uh, ridiculous so i think that's gonna potentially be the the next big collapse which is a really bad thing because that's gonna be huge so you know get the the three g's gold ground and guns right um so uh sarcasm a little bit not that i have any of those i for the record i do not have any of those things do not come here looking for those things of course, all of those things have been confiscated by the government in the past. Uh, the gold confiscation by FDR, eminent domain by the government, uh, plenty of gun confiscation going on right now. As we speak, Virginia is really on the precipice of gun confiscation in a formerly deeply red, deeply gun-loving state. It is going to be really interesting what happens there. I just hope that uh, peace and understanding erupts and nothing bad happens in Virginia. So that's right about 30 minutes. I think I've covered all the topics I want to cover. I will uh, go ahead and link to those uh, books I mentioned as good starters. There's a, a ton of books out there um, and I've been reading them all for 10 years. Um, uh, a lot of uh, great uh, discussions. I mentioned Tom Woods. He has a wonderful podcast. Dr. Murphy, Robert Murphy has a podcast that goes more into the, uh, the nuances of economics. There's uh, a lot of things on YouTube if you're not really a, a reader. Uh, a lot of uh, great little short blurbs on YouTube. Larkin Rose has some uh, great ones. I think he's the one that did the... Um, uh, what if I were king? Larkin Rose, what if I were king? I guess I can Google that right now and answer that question. Yes, I just did. I don't know why I didn't cut that out. I'm just going to leave it in there. Uh, if you were king. Another great YouTube video is The Philosophy of Freedom. Uh, the one from 2014. It's little stick figures. That person explained all this in eight minutes. I don't know why it took me 30, but I guess I'm just a little bit slow. Anywho, I really thank you for giving this a listen. I'd like a lot of feedback and how I can convey this uh, message better or questions you have. Uh, or if you completely disagree with this, maybe I'll have you on and we'll have a uh, friendly discussion. I uh, look forward to your feedback. Honoring Ron Paul, Episode 7.